Something else that's a little bit obscure for us American English speakers that I learned in a French club in high school. It's Christmas time, and this is as Christmassy as Isaiah 30 is going to get tonight. So right here at 207, it's called He is Born. And uh, sometimes when you have a Christmas, a, a song, a hymn in English, if it sounds a little... Um, contrived is a great adjective. Um, maybe it's because of translation and it worked better in another language. Oh, holy night is like that. I know we don't feel it's contrived because it's the time for the tenor or whoever to really show, you know, what he's got. But, um, but it's, there's not a lot of substance to it. It's a French Christmas carol. He is born as one too, and it's the il est né. It's the, that's the way they said it in French. He is born the divine Christ child. Play the oboe and bagpipes merrily. Jouer au bois raisonné musette sounds a lot better than play the oboe and bagpipes merrily. But it's still the same thing. He's born the divine Christ child. Sing we all of the Savior mild. And then it goes through a little bit of prophecy. And the reason I like this song, besides its subject matter, is actually the birth of Christ is you could probably set a snare drum to it on March. It's, a, it's, a, it's kind of a rousing, it's of, of the Christmas carols, it's the marching one that I know of, and I like that. I've been in a lot of Christmas parades. We never played this one. But um, uh, we did some uh, what was, what was Jingle Bells Forever, like a mix-up of uh, Jingle Bells and Stars and Stripes Forever. That's, that's good for marching band, but this one would work too. He is born, and I'm sure we'll hear that one sometime this week. Be sure to study up because it's coming to... Oui, oui. I will certainly sing it for you in French. Michel. <laughs> Challenging words, encouraging words. In Psalm 5 tonight... Where David says, give ear to my words, O Lord, consider my groaning. A man in distress says, give ear to my words, consider my groaning. Heed the sound of my cry for help, my King and my God, for to you I pray. In the morning, O Lord, you will hear my voice. In the morning, I will order my prayer to you and eagerly watch. So much of the lament material involves whether you're asleep or awake, whether you're able to rest in peace and security, or whether you're in anxiety and you can't get a good night's sleep, or you're under threat, or some other reason. And I think when David says this, he is in distress, but he's confident in the Lord that he will see the morning. For you're not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness. This is the moral side of things. If you're aligned with righteousness, then you're aligned with God's protection and provision, even if it's only through resurrection that you'll be provided and preserved. He says, no evil dwells with you. This is our problem with God, that he will not take pleasure in wickedness and no evil dwells with him. Our problem with him is that that makes him opposed to us in our fallen nature. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all who do iniquity. You destroy those who speak falsehood. The Lord abhors the man of bloodshed and deceit. 
a magnificent resume of the moral goodness and righteousness of our Creator. Are we like this? Are we more and more hungering and thirsting after righteousness where we see the differential, where the, where the, the stark difference between righteousness and its alternative grabs us and we say, we know what we want. Jesus promised that those who hunger and thirst after righteousness would be filled. And then he says, but as for me, by your abundant loving kindness, I will enter your house. At your holy temple, I will bow in reverence for you. David has every confidence, despite his fallenness, despite his own brokenness, that he won't be on the wrong side of the wrath of God on wickedness because of God's grace, because of God's goodness, not because of his own. And so he, the supplicant, brings his prayer request, and you can pray this, and I can pray this with just as much uh, dedication, devotion, commitment as David does. Oh, Lord, lead me in your righteousness because of my foes. Make your way straight before me. There's nothing reliable in what they say. Their inward part is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. Hold them guilty, O God, by their own devices. Let them fall. And the multitude of their transgressions thrust them out, for they are rebellious against you. You want, you and I definitely want to recognize we're in a war. The war is not bullets, it's not body armor, it's not flesh and blood. But it is a war, and it is righteousness and wickedness, and it is eternity and the balance, and there is infinite righteousness being contradicted. You definitely want to be on the side of righteousness in the war so that you can say, my enemies, those that are after me, those that are opponents of mine, are also enemies of God, and more importantly, they're enemies of God. This is David considering the battlefield and making sure he's aligned on the right side. By the way, it's not just the right side, it's the side that ultimately wins. If we read the grand narrative of Scripture and look at the prophetic destiny God has told us for all creation, God wins, righteousness wins. But those who raid against David, he is casting as actually a raid against God, and you definitely want that to be the case. You never want to be on the wrong side of the line of scrimmage between truth and error. If you find yourself, as Paul tells the Galatians, if I have become your enemy by telling you the truth, you never want to find yourself opposed to God or opposed to the truth. In the time in which we live, it's very popular to say there is no truth. There, is, there are many truths. There's my own impression of things. There's where I see things. And yeah, you've got your take. I've got my take. But none of us is God. His take is the way things are. That's the nature of reality. And so he says, but let all who take refuge in you be glad. Let them ever sing for joy and may you shelter them that those who love your name may exult in you. This is, this is more and more what you and I want to be our self-portrait. You want to say that's exactly who I am. I'm not the one that exalts myself against God's will. I'm not the person that says, I will have my way no matter what. I'm not the person that says, my truth is the only truth that matters to me. You want to say that I take refuge in God. Let all who take refuge in you be glad. Let them ever sing for joy, and may you shelter them, that those who love your name may exult in you. See, there, it isn't just any way you want. It, there's a right and a wrong. There's a right way for things to go. For it is you who blesses the righteous man, O Lord. You surround him with favor as with a shield. 
This is uh, what we want to be true for ourselves. This is the longing of our hearts. This is an elaboration on what Jesus said again in the Beatitudes. Those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, they're happy because they'll be filled. Let's take a moment for silent prayer. Make sure we're in fellowship with God, reflecting on his character, and uh, if, if needs be, the solution to personal sin in the life is confession. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, the moments before us, we devote to your care for your uh, teaching us through your spirit to know you on your terms, to think your thoughts after you, to want what you want, and therefore be to, tran- to be transformed in the inner man. I pray for this work, this supernatural work by your spirit through your word in Christ's name. Amen. We're in, we're in Isaiah uh, chapter 30, and we're in this chunk of scripture with the six woes of 28 through 33. Uh, quickly closing in on the end of um, this major section in Isaiah that uh, turns the corner in Isaiah chapter 40. We're almost, believe it or not, to that portion. And I can't, for some reason, get out of Isaiah 30. Not my plan. But uh, we find ourselves learning what God has to say to Judah in their rebellion. And his opinion is really helpful uh, because it's not, as we've said, about the geopolitics of their time or who they think will win or, or, or it's not the problem isn't the Assyrians. It's really their relationship with God. That's always been the problem. And on the outset of this, I want to I remind you of, of that idea. The temporal circumstances that we're in are arranged by a sovereign God who is arranging history on our behalf. And when I say us, understand I mean those who love God and therefore those who are called according to his purpose. Romans 8.28 says he's arranging history on our behalf. That means the circumstances that we're in are the circumstances that he is arranging, and they aren't necessarily good, but they are for our good. And he leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And even though on that path of righteousness for his name's sake, I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'll fear no evil for you are with me. A lot of times I hear people, believers that are having some fits and starts, their spiritual life is sort of stalling. For whatever reason, they're having trouble in their walk. I hear things like, I feel like I'm stuck. I just can't get forward in life. I can't, I can't get where I need to go. And it's like God has kind of got me in, you know, this infinite loop. I just can't get out of this, this eddy. It's like life is this stream and I'm off on the side, you know, in this eddy and I just can't get back downstream. I just can't move forward. I'm stuck. And I've had moments, of fleeting moments where I felt the same way. It's a horrible thought that I contend that the enemy of God would creep in and try to get us to think that God is somehow all of a sudden the, the God of the deists. He's the God who isn't in the circumstance, that he's not with us as we're going through the death shadow valley, that he isn't progressing us through his purposes for us. And the circumstances of our lives are part of that. 
as we always draw our attention back to him and redirect our thoughts to what he wants, what he's doing, who he is, who he says he is. But we, we get our eyes off God and the enemy of God paints this picture of the God who isn't there. The God who maybe he was there for a little while and we were going good with him, but now we're not. And maybe, uh, maybe he was paying attention when you were a new believer or when you had those good experiences that you attributed to God, but, but now all of a sudden you're not having those good experiences, so something's changed. He, he must not be interested anymore. And we make this idiotic conclu- conclusion, and I do it, we all do it. And, and I, I, hope, I hope this is helpful to you. We think we're learning who God is by the situation or the circumstances that we're in. We think that if something good happens, then God is good. If something bad happens, then God is bad. And we act like we are the prophet learning the nature of reality by the gauge of our own emotional set. If I feel good, God must be good. If I feel bad, God, God must be bad. And we all do it. We all think we're like the lab where the experiment for whether God is good or not is taking place. And in me, good means God is good. Bad means God is bad. And that's just idolatry. That's me saying I'm God and my emotions determine who God is. But the truth is that the, the death-shadowed valley is part of the path of righteousness for his namesake. The truth is that God is working in our circumstances, all of our circumstances, and it may be that my idea of what the next step in life should be isn't God's idea. It may be that I'm so focused on my circumstances, on my situation in life, my job, my family circumstance, whatever, romantic relationships. I may be so worried about those things and not considering God who is there, who has a plan, who's walking with me through these paths of righteousness for for his namesake. I may just lose track of the thought that he has a purpose and plan for this day, for this moment, for this part of my life. And there's no part of my life that doesn't belong to him because I've committed my way to the Lord. I'm trusting also in him that he'll do it. And we forget these things and we uh, lose sight of who we are. And it's so easy to do. And we take a moment, look back at the scriptures, and it's so interesting. I get challenged from time to time by believers that don't have the thought in their minds at the moment of what God's word is. They wonder, what exactly is the relevance of all this detailed examination of Isaiah to my life? You know, this is, why are we studying Isaiah? Why can't we just get done with this and do something more obvious? It's so subtle. There's so many, I mean, look at the structure of the woes, the six woes. And he's not even talking to anybody I know. He's talking to the northern kingdom and then mostly the southern kingdom. And eventually he's going to, you know, he's going to bring judgment on Assyria. I don't know any of these people. How is this relevant to me? And the, the, the thought is that I'm so fixated on my circumstances that unless somebody paints the little, uh, little picket fence on the dollhouse of my circumstances, unless, unless someone fits into that, then it can't be relevant to my life. What God is going to do is say, your circumstances are the obstacle course in which I am asking you to look to me and trust me through the hardships that you're walking through. And the only way you can do that is to pay some close attention to God's word so that you know him. What's amazing is that um, Isaiah is hard. Isaiah is hard because it's poetry. Poetry has to be examined, especially in its structure, which means we've got to ask questions that are literary in nature. Some of the metaphors, some of the illustrations, some of the comparisons are not obvious to us at first, and we may not fully grasp all of them. 
So we just wonder, what's the point? Why do I need to even study this? But that's, that's a satanic lie. And I'll tell you why. Because the word of God is alive and powerful. Because what I say about God's word isn't God's word. What Isaiah wrote down in Isaiah 30 is God's word. So my take on it, while it's probably right, we all know that. My take on it is not the word of God. But Isaiah 30 is the word of God, and my goal is to teach the word of God. I didn't say just read. I said teach the word of God. So it has to be interpreted in the sense in which the author intends, in the time which was given, historically, grammatically, with all the insight we can bring. It has to be interpreted. Now, that's the step that is skipped, generally, in evangelicalism. Evangelicals will grab a Bible translated, and they'll assume all English translations are equivalent. They will get an English translation that seems to be accessible, and then they'll read it. And then the goal of the preacher in the message is to help you understand how to feel like obeying God in whatever the particular is. So we'll tell stories that get you. I love a good story that gets me. I love it. But I don't like it as much as being taught God's word and learning to apply it to my life and my circumstances. You know what happens in that moment? It's not that I'm hearing a story that gets me. It's that I'm living a story and God's word has gotten me. And that to me is a much bigger deal. So when I run across a passage like we have tonight in Isaiah chapter 30, where God is portrayed as standing by to bless where God is portrayed by the poet Isaiah as the one waiting to bless an errant, a prodigal Israel that won't come back to him, that he's standing by with all the blessings and he can't give them because they're in rebellion. When I see that portrait of God, I say, this is easily applicable to my life. If God is standing by and waiting to bless Judah in in Judah's rebellion, then for stronger reason, he is certainly standing by to to bless those who are his children in Christ in this age, baptized by the Holy Spirit into Christ. So let's get into Isaiah chapter 30, and we'll pick it up at right about verse verse, uh, 15, I believe, Isaiah 30, 15. Let my Bible gently fall open to Isaiah 30. For those of you who are wondering, it's about right there in the Bible, right about in the middle of this, the way this Bible is printed. Isaiah 30 and verse 15, one of our favorite verses. Every once in a while, you slog through and do the hard work in your poetic study, and you get across a, a verse that'll jump out to you in English. And you say, I don't understand a whole lot of Isaiah 30, but verse 15 is, uh, seems to be very, very applicable. He says, for thus the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel has said, in repentance and rest you'll be saved, and quietness and trust is your strength, but you are not willing. For thus the Master, that's Adonai, and then Yahweh, the Holy One of Israel, Kodesh Yisrael, he said, in a returning, that's a re- repentance, what does that mean? The word means coming back to him. If that means, if we go to Latin and then to English and get repentance, maybe, but the word shuv, shuvah means in the returning, and meaning they're away from him and they come back to him, this is the prodigal son. This is the prodigal son. I call the, part, the, the, the parable of the prodigal son the longing father. I call it the par- parable of the longing father. I learned that from Dr. Dwight Pentecost. 
the longing father because of who is being portrayed in the parable. Do you know the parable of the prodigal son? It's the third of the three lost things. You've got the lost sheep and the lost coin and the lost son. And the son goes off and finds himself eating pig slop and having squandered his father's inheritance. And he, he comes to himself and says, my father's servants, servants have a better diet than I do here. I'll just go back and try to be a slave. And at least I'll eat regular food in my dad's house. I won't be eating this pig slop, which is a really tough thing for a, a Judean to be told that this Jewish man was eating pig slop. So, so he, he comes home, and it says in the parable in Luke 15, you can look it up, it says he's from a long way off, the father saw his son. He saw him from a long way off. Why did he see him from a long way off? Because he was looking. Because between, let's just kind of envision it, between the, the, the stoop of their house and the overlook point, there was this trail, this well-worn trail that dad multiple times a day would go look and see if his son was coming. And maybe today, maybe this afternoon be the time. Have you ever waited on the mailbox? Have you ever waited for that mailbox? And, and the, some of you are like, mailbox. We're talking about people used to write letters. Have you ever been? I had the privilege. I was once waiting for a letter. And checking the mailbox twice and three times a day because I knew that sometimes they delivered twice and other times I forgot that I had already checked. And, you know, you're waiting on the mailbox. Have you had that kind of anticipation? We're waiting on a response. Some of you are waiting more. Your attention span is short. You're waiting on a text. You're waiting on a, a, a response back to whatever you sent. You just anticipate nothing. I wonder if my phone cellular is dead. Does, have I checked? Is my cell signal on? Maybe I need to come to higher ground and make sure that, that they know that I'm waiting for them to respond. And that anticipation is the father waiting for his son. He goes out to this, this lookout point from his stoop at his house, and he's looking from a long way off, and he sees his son. And he squints and he says, it doesn't say all this, I'm filling in some details, but he squints out there and he sees in a long way off, that could be him. There's nobody else that's doing. I've been waiting for him to come back. And when he comes back, the boy starts to say the little speech that he had prepared, which starts off with, I'm not worthy to be in your house and I've sinned against heaven and earth, uh, God and man. And I'm, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but, but I deserve to be your slave. Just let me be your slave. And before he can say the condemnation that he deserves to be a slave, his father wraps him in his arms just upon his confession and owning that he was wrong for what he did. Before he can get the rest of his words out, he's in a bear hug. His father has put his cloak on him and given him his signet ring and they're slaughtering the fatted calf. And that's the parable of the prodigal son. But, but who is being portrayed here? They say parables. Well, you know, you can't make a parable walk on all fours. Well, you can't. That's true. But the parable is an analogy, and the analogy has certain set focal reference that, that he's talking about. Now, the prodigal is the sinner tax collector in Israel in Jesus' day in the first century. The other brother that got it right and had a bad attitude when his brother came back and didn't rejoice, didn't want to go to the party, never threw a party for me and my friends, that guy, that's the religious crowd in Israel. It's the self-righteous Israelite because they're brothers, your Jewish brothers that are prostitutes and tax collectors and sinners are coming to God, coming to Christ, and heaven is rejoicing that they're coming back to God, being the wayward children. And you, self-righteous brothers, we, never, we always kept the law, you're not thinking like the father of that prodigal son, like your own father. Who's the father? That parable does directly point to God the Father. It's a parable against the religious self-righteous crowd, wherever they are. 
It's a parable in judgment of them because they think that it's me and God, but their arm is around a cardboard cutout that they've made for themselves of God. They don't know God. They need a savior and they don't think they do. In fact, they're gonna kill the savior thinking to get rid of him. And so this is the heart of God. He wants his son to come back. He wants, he rejoices when they return. And this is exactly what they should have known from reading Isaiah. Of course, the people that received the prophecy of Isaiah on the Judean street rejected his words out of hand. They don't want to hear from the Lord as we've already heard in chapter 30. In a returning and calm, you'll be saved. That's a coming back to me and resting, a coming back to God and being composed and calm at peace, not in a spazzing anxiety. See, God wants us to be resolute and calm and quiet, parallel to calm and confidence. That's batach. You will be your strength. You'll be saved. You'll be strong. And this is God's prodigal, the father of the prodigal. This is his appeal to them. Come back. Come back and rest in me. Take refuge. But they were not willing. Now, throughout the scriptures, it's important to point out God holds humans volitionally responsible. However you resolve the conundrum, the very difficult philosophical problem of free will and human volition and divine sovereignty, however you resolve this, you have to acknowledge the scriptural data that God establishes as the basis of his judgment very often the volition of the people. And God is not the author of sin. Any system of theology has God as the author of sin is more interested in its system than in the scriptures. And this is why I would say be more biblical than systematic, in my opinion. And I know there's a system out there that wants to say, yeah, ultimately God's the cause of sin. It's monstrous, in my opinion, to say that. The, the definition of sin is that which contradicts the righteousness of God. So anyway, the point is that God holds them responsible. They were not willing. Uh, we don't want to go through all that. We, we, did, we did a little bit of uh, battle drill number one last time, and that's enough, enough of battle drill one for the time being. You were not willing. In verse 16, and then you said, no, we will not rest in you. We will not have calm, and we will not have quiet. We will not be strong and be saved. We have horses. no. For upon horses will flee. Now listen to the interesting poetry that Isaiah throws back at them. For, for on horses will flee, therefore you will flee. We're going to ride away on horses. We're going to get away. Probably not get away, but you are going to run. And upon swift ones will ride. Therefore they will be swift, those who will pursue you. And the language is really tight. Swift ones, the word swift ones, and then the people described that their, their attackers will be swift. So it's really tight. They, they say, our solution, we're going to get up and run away. You certainly are going to run. That's the answer. On swift horses will ride, there will be swift, but it'll be those chasing you, they'll be swift. And so the, if the problem is your relationship with God and you try to solve it by addressing the threat that he brings, you haven't really gotten to the problem. It's the old thing of, of trying to treat symptoms instead of diagnosing the actual disease. Their problem, your problem, my problem isn't the thing. It's God. It's, it's where are you with him? And that's why we emphasize the spiritual life so much. Whatever you're dealing with, let's do an example. For, for, for an example, let's talk about an addiction. An addiction is a real problem. It's a real problem. 
uh, an addiction to uh, a behavior or a substance or some dependency that someone develops. We, we, we go from habit to I can't help it kind of thing, kind of problem. It's its own thing. It takes over someone's life. An alcohol addiction will ruin your life. It'll ruin your family's life. It'll ruin your relationships and all those things. It's absolutely true. And there will be a great deal of personal sin committed through all of that. But when we start peeling, why is this happening? What is going on with this? One of the approaches to say, well, I'm just, I'm a victim of my genetics or I'm a victim of, you know, the, the, the culture, or, you know, it's in, everywhere I see it's, it's, it's attacking me and, and we can talk about it's not my fault, but I don't think that's a helpful thing to say, um, uh, it's not my fault when it is our fault to make these choices. Rather, I think what you need to do is say, a righteous God has called me to his righteousness, to walk with him as I should. And anything that steps me away from that righteousness is a distraction to the most important thing in my life. So perhaps it comes along with the consequence of physical chemical dependency. But what's the prior problem? I have made a choice to transgress the righteousness of God and therefore fellowship with God in a relationship with him. And you don't want to do that. So I'm saying the spiritual issue is a much bigger and prior problem than the dependency, than the sexual practice that's, that I can't help it. I'm a deviant. I've got to be in a, 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 an abhorrent, uh, abominable practice. No, the, the problem before you got into that I can't help it business is you have said no to a personal moment-by-moment relationship with God walking by the Spirit walking with God the Father in the light as he himself is in the light. And so I would say that the, the physical problem is real. The dependency stuff is its own, it's, it, it's, it's a trap and it's so many people can't get out of it. And we've all known people who have died in the trap and we've tried to help them and they haven't been able to get help. And then finally, you know, they, they die from their addiction or whatever. But before there was ever the physical dependency problem, there was a personal being who made us, who wants a personal relationship with us, and it's on his terms in righteousness. And so, so am I saying continue into addiction, but get your spiritual life together? No. I'm saying that the, until you get to the root and what your life is really for, it's going to be, I think it's, it's going to be very hard to establish why you shouldn't inter- engage in certain practices. And, and um, my, my prediction is that uh, the reason the, step, the 12-step programs are helpful, the reason AA works, they're pursuing the higher power, they're looking for value in their lives, we're at the rock bottom, we, we know we can't continue to live like this, and they're seeking help from God. And I totally appreciate that we're going to turn to God for our source of strength, for our help. But we can be very biblical here without looking at anybody's book or program and say, the Creator is calling us to a personal relationship that is described by his righteousness and it's walking in the light as he is in the light and I want to be with him I want to be pleasing him I want to serve him I want to walk by his spirit I want to do what he has me doing and instead of pursuing um, whatever else I might avoid him with and replace him with for stimulation for diversion for distraction in other words, I guess what I'm saying is addiction is a bigger problem than we think um, with a lot more than just alcohol or drugs. 
uh, or other things that we know are known traps. There's lots of avoidance factors people will all engage in to get away from the emptiness of ignoring God. And it'd be better to run after him. But, but this is the consequence. If you want to disregard me and keep tr- pretending like it's about the Assyrians, then my paddle's going to uh, follow through with its swing. He says, a thousand from the face of a thread of one. Doesn't that communicate? Well, I think my, my Bible probably helps a little bit. In, in, in their English paraphrase, they say, 1,000 will flee at the threat of one man. That's what it means. A thousand people of you Jews are going to run with one Assyrian. You're going to run in terror. From the face of a thread of five, you will all flee. You will flee. So you're going to, if, if five show up, the whole country is going to run away. We just can't. It sounds a lot like um, all of the armies of Israel quaking in their tents at Ephes Damim in 1 Samuel 17. Everybody's uh, just in shock because they can't meet this challenge of the great uh, Philistine champion. They're all afraid. And um, war is a horrible thing. It's a very fearful thing. But can you imagine this description that, that you're afraid as a whole country because five, five soldiers show up? But that's the nature of fear. It's irrational. You shouldn't be afraid just because one guy shows up, a thousand of you run away. You probably beat them if you all get together. <laughs> but not if you're afraid. And that's the, the fear is, is so destructive. And until you're left as a signal post upon the peak of the mountain, that is the way this little chunk ends. And it's, understand, God is saying, I have to keep spanking you, and it's the Assyrians. And what you're trying to do is fight the paddle. And you need to come back to me and find your rest, and you won't. That's what he's saying. All right, in verse 18, so therefore, therefore Yahweh waits patiently waits patiently to be gracious to you. And therefore he rises up, he's on high to have compassion on you for a God of justice is the Lord. Happy are all who wait on him. I told you verse 15 is one of these great verses that kind of jumps out at us and in, in, in coming back to me, you know, and trusting in me, you'll find your rest, you'll find your strength. Verse 18 tells you a ton about the nature of God. It tells you about his long suffering. It tells you about his ultimate objectives, his ultimate aims. When you find yourself under divine discipline, you might, in arrogance, reject the discipline and despise the instruction of your Father in heaven, as Hebrews 12 tells you not to do. And you might say, God just is angry at me. He's mean. Well, you can do that, but that would be foolish because God is actually trying to get them back on the path. He's the ultimate shepherd. He wants the sheep to go to the green pasture and they're running over into the rocks and the weeds and the, and the hypodermic needle, uh, needle trash and they're eating the wrong things and he's trying to get them back into the lush green grass. That's the picture of God's discipline for national Israel. He waits patiently to be gracious to you. Now in English, that doesn't necessarily jump out at us. V'lachen yach yechakeh Adonai Lechanachem. Say that time, three times real fast. Yechakeh lechanachem. That is what you call alliteration. And he is alliterative in these two lines, and it's pretty neat the way he structures it. The power of Hebrew poetry. So therefore, let's get a description of the Lord, he says. 
Therefore, Yahweh waits. The word in Hebrew, if you're interested, the verb is chacha. That's C-H-A-K-A-H, chacha. Now, I don't expect you to remember that, but I do want you to show you why this is neat. He waits, chacha. Did you know God waits? The Bible isn't full of verses talking about God's waiting, but he does. And this is a description of God holding the Assyrian paddle, spanking Israel for their idolatry and their failure to come back to him. And they're going to Egypt as a solution, which is no solution. It's, it's depicting God as in discipline mode as a good shepherd with the rod to correct his beloved nation. But it also shows you the attitude of God with that paddle swinging in full force as he's waiting for them. He is the longing father whose prodigal is far in a far country. And he wants him to come home and he'll never stop wanting his son to come home. And he waits and he waits. And that's the God that we serve, Chacha, the, the God who waits. To be Hanan, he waits to be gracious to you. Chaka and Hanan are not exactly uh, rhyming, but they're alliterative, especially in their contextual forms. And Isaiah is definitely doing that with these two ch, chet words, chaka, C-H-A-K-A-H, and chanan, C-H-A-N-A-N. Have you ever heard this word chanan before? Something that sounds like chanan? You hear it all the time. You hear it all the time. You hear the name Hannah. Hannah. And you think, wow, that's really cool. That's to be gracious, Hanan is the verb. The noun is not a feminine noun usually. It can be feminized, Chana. Usually it's a masculine noun, Chen. Remember that from Hebrew class? Chen, the word. Grace isn't, uh, it isn't um, Chesed. Chesed is loyal covenant-keeping love that's due to a covenant partner. It's a beautiful thing. Chesed is a beautiful thing, but it's not grace. Grace is Chen. C-H-E-N is how you would transliterate that because I don't know how to spell in English, but hen is, okay, so where did, so if hen is the feminine, what's the masculine, hen? Good thought, maybe Henry, it's not. This will blow your mind. The beloved disciple's name, John. John is grace. It's hen. That's what, that's the name John. Surprise. And, and um, he's waiting, and this is the verb form, to be gracious to you. God, think about the profundity of this. God, you, rebel, you rebels, you ignorant people that have said, we don't want to hear the word of Yahweh from his prophet. We don't want it his way. We don't care how you say it, Isaiah. We're not going to listen to it. How many ways have we heard Isaiah try to appeal to these people? God told him in chapter 6, they're not going to listen to you, but you're going to keep saying it. See, God is waiting, even though they're stiff-necked and rebellious. He's waiting to be gracious to you. The God of the universe, the infinite, eternal, almighty, glorious, exalted creator is waiting to be gracious to you, Judah. And therefore, he is on high. The word on high or exalted, it's, it's a flexible word, is room. Now, those in Hebrew class will recall or those who have, who have suffered through Hebrew class, will recall that this is the infinitive form. It's the dictionary form of this word, room. That's not rum. It's a long uh, room. And, and so this word is resh vav mem in its dictionary form. But anyway, we always say this as room. 
It is to be on high, and it's another verb, to have racham, to have compassion on you, racham. Uh, I should have said racham. I'm sorry, racham. Um, that's okay. There, that's another form of that, racham. Rum and rachem. He is chaka to chanan. He is rum to rachem. It's alliterative. He's saying these, dup- these doublets, and it's a lot like we had in chapter 3, verse 15, and I think it's really beautiful. He waits to be gracious. He's on high where he waits to have compassion on you. When God is portrayed in our hearts as somebody who is distant from us, uninterested in our affairs, not concerned for our best, what we're doing is thinking from the sinful flesh that what we want is the ultimate good thing and that God must not be good because he's not doing what we want. What we're doing in that moment is self-idolatry. We're saying in that moment that we are God in our desires because we want better than God wants. But if we think about it, if we think about the wanting, remember my rationale on wanting, you know what I think about wanting? I think wanting is something that we do and it's part of our bearing God's image, something God does. All through the scriptures, God wants. Do you know he wants things? Did you know that? God wants things, did you know that? He has things that he'd rather have or, or not, things he'd rather not have. God isn't willing or desiring that any should perish but that all come to repentance. Well, you're never gonna be able to, to, to contradict the will of God. God doesn't want us to sin against him. He doesn't want us to rebel. He doesn't want the prodigal son to take the inheritance and run, often wasted in a far country, eat pig slop. He doesn't want that, but we do it. Yeah, that, that's the nature of reality. You deal with a sovereign God who is permitting you to do things he doesn't want you to do. And that's a big summary of actually world history. But one of the things we know about God in his wanting is he wants good things for you because he's righteous, so he only wants right things. He's loving, he only wants loving things for you. And he is omniscient, he knows the alternatives. He knows every possible permutation of all the possible alternatives. But it's got to be this, it's got to be now, it's got to be this way. All of those things are something less, perhaps, than what God knows because he wants better for you than you can want for yourself. So my rationale on wanting things, wanting whatever it is, is you need to start co-locating your desires with God's desires. You need to start thinking, not as I will, but your will be done. What God wants is better for me than even what I could want for myself. Remember Samson, get her for me. Don't you want a girl that's part of our, fan, our, our nation, worships Yahweh? No, for she looks good for me. I said, get her for me. I've got eyes, mom and dad. Thank you. You've got the checkbook. I've got the eyes. That's all we need to do here. And that's, that's how we get. We're stiff-necked and ignorant. And we don't realize how ignorant we are. But it's really helpful to grab a little bit of humility, grab a hunk of humility here and think these things through. This is the God we're serving. He is waiting to be gracious to you and therefore he's on high to have compassion on you. That's a really wonderful thought. Now back to my original thought that I was trying to portray here with you, that we get this idea that God is distant from us, that I'm going through something that he's not involved in because my circumstances aren't going the way I want them to. I'm stuck, I can't advance. I can't, there's no further development in my life because my circumstances are a certain way and it's not going like I want and I just can never catch a break. God must not be involved and I've learned that from my circumstances. 
Now, that's, that's a foolish way to, to go, but we understand why someone in pain might go there. We have compassion that you might, in arrogance, slip into thinking you know things you don't know. But let's take that thought and compare it to what God says to national Israel while he's spanking them. God is waiting to have compassion on you, to be gracious to you. He's on high to have compassion on you. This is something that you can take to the bank because if it's true for Judah, listen, a lot of the Old Testament works this way. If it's true for people in a bilateral conditional covenant arrangement from Mount Sinai, that they're a national people that belong to him by national contract concluded with the forefathers at Mount Sinai. If that's true in Hezekiah's day that, that, that Isaiah could say this to Judah, then for a much stronger reason, it's true for you and me, individual believers united to God in Christ Jesus through the baptism of the Holy Spirit. We are his born again children in Christ. The people of Israel were not in Christ. They were looking forward to Messiah, but no one received the Holy Spirit. No one was baptized into Christ, made in union with Christ before the Holy Spirit came on the day of Pentecost. That's what defines the age we live in. That's what the church is. It isn't just the Gentiles are now hanging out with Jews. It's that Jews and Gentiles are baptized by the Spirit into Christ, into one new man in Christ. It's a new agency begun in 33 AD at the day of Pentecost. And so if this was true for covenant partner national Israel in their idolatrous rebellion, how much more by a stronger reason is it true for you? Is everybody clear on the a fortiori argument? I feel like we've got to walk around tonight. We'll just have some coffee together. Do a little strutting around. Do you know what a fortiori is? Cheers. A fortiori, it means it's, um, it's I've, I've heard people that know Latin say it's a fortiori. Um, I've also heard it called a fortiori. And um, I've also known people that read a lot but don't hear a lot. So they read it and then they come up with uh, the way to pronounce words, but they don't know, they haven't heard them before. So you, you have a conversation. Are you, are you saying a fortiori, a fortiori? Anyway, a fortiori, it means for, it's, it's Latin, it means for stronger reason. He who didn't spare his own son but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? That's the a fortiori argument. Do you understand? If God gave, the Father gave the Son. If he's given the son, the highest and best and greatest, then how is he not also with him going to give us everything? He's already given us the heir of everything. How will he not give, him, give us everything? That's the rationale. If I, can, if I can eat two hot dogs, I can eat one hot dog. Not in the same day, but understand, if I can lift 50 pounds, then I can lift five pounds for stronger reason. It's much easier to do. That's the fortiori argument. I don't know a lot of logical argumentation, but that's something that keeps coming up in the Bible. And I think theologically it works here. If this is true for rebellious national Israel and their bilateral covenant and their rebellion against God in the 7th century BC or, or, or so, if that's true for them, then for stronger reason it's true for you in Christ. And I think you can apply this. I've had people say, well, you can't apply the Old Testament to the New Testament because that's a different time and age and everything. But understand, I didn't, I didn't reinterpret the Old Testament. This is what God was saying to them you know, 2,700 years ago. That's, that was his message to them. I'm saying this is the God we're serving. This is the same one we're dealing with. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so, so I'm applying, there's one interpretation, there are many applications, this idea, God is the one who's waiting 
to be gracious to you. What do you call that person that comes by your table with the decanter if you've got your glass? What's, what's he called? I'm sorry, what? A waiter. Now, we're almost able still to understand this illustration. The person that serves at your table, that when you're out at a restaurant, is called a waiter. Well, it used to be. Now, what are they called? A server. Not a servant. That's, whoa, whoa. Not a servant. A server. But that's also a computer. So I don't know. It's very confusing times we live in. But, but a waiter. Why is the person a waiter? Because they're over there watching. Did you know you're under observation while you're having your dinner? People are watching. It's discreet. They're wa- but they're looking at you. They're watching to see, is that glass empty? And when, the reason David can say, my cup runneth over, because God is waiting to pour. And he's pouring more than you need. This is the God we serve. This is not a health and wealth gospel. It's not a, a misunderstanding of, of a quid pro quo with God. You're not going to compete with God for giving or something. That's not what we're saying. We're saying the default way to think of him is that the grace abounds and it pours and he wants to bless. Stop thinking of God as the stingy one that has everything. He doesn't give you enough. That's Satan's idea. That's his argument. We have to stop thinking of God as the holder backer. That's Genesis 3.5. It's the diabolical implication. Four, in verse 18, a God of justice is Yahweh. Happy are all who wait on him. Did you catch the inversion between verses 17 and 18? Therefore, God waits, Yahweh waits to be gracious to you. A God of justice, Yahweh, happy are all who wait on him. Now, These are two sentences. Grammatically, they're very interesting. Some of you aren't interested in grammar, so you're like, well, I'm out. (laughs) Um, But let me just be a geek with you for a second. The word is and are, it draws our attention. Is and are. These are predications. You diagram these differently than other sentences with different kind of verbs because it's, it's understood to be verbs. The way God is described, he's a God of justice. So what's the weight? Adjust to his justice. He wants you to be aligned with him. It's on his terms. It's in the paths of righteousness where the blessing is. Not off in the tulis, not off in the, in the weeds and, and distractions, but in the paths of righteousness. That's where the blessing is. Those who wait on him, remember, he's waiting to bless. In verse 17, those who are waiting on him are happy. Notice the predication, happy, it's their description. God is the God of justice. Happy are those who wait on him. It's a rhyme. God and, and his people are being compared favorably. God is a God of justice. We who wait on him are happy. And that's the way the, the, po- the poem is rhyming. Let's talk a little bit as we close about an Isaianic Isaianic pattern, paradigm for relationship with God. Did you know you can turn Isaiah into an adjective? Are you watching Isaiah? Isaiah's not feeling well tonight. My Isaiah, named after this Isaiah. An Isaianic paradigm of relationship with God. First, God is standing by to bless his children. God is not holding back from you, except that 
He knows that's not good for you. It's not the time for this. I have good things for you. Trust me. You're going to have to build up a little bit of uh, skeletal muscle to be able to carry that load you're asking for, that kind of thing. God is holding something back if it's not good for you to have. You're the little kid whose dad has the, the, the garage in the mansion with all the Ferraris ever made and a collection of Ferraris. He's got all the keys to them and they're all yours. But you're three. You're not getting those keys. You're not getting those keys when you're seven. You're not getting those keys when you're 16, especially. <laughs> but there's coming a time when you will be enjoying some handmade Italian performance art. Okay, God is standing by to bless his children. Second, God's children should be waiting on God's timing for that blessing. That's, that's the other side of it, and it's the faith problem. It's all faith. Do you believe this about God that he's waiting to bless? Do you believe that he has a thing and he's looking forward? It's the, it's the path. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his namesake. He's like, come on. Now you're in this, in the circumstance of your life and you're like, my life is all stopped up and I can't, I can't get to the next step and I feel like I'm stuck. Are you walking with him? Because if you're walking with him, it doesn't matter what your circumstances, your relationships, or all those details of life are doing. What matters is what you're doing with him. Are you trusting him? Are you talking to him? Are you asking him about it? Are you telling him this is what's on your mind? Help me see it your way. Relate to him because that's really where the advancement in life is anyway. It doesn't matter if you get to the, to the top corporate uh, of the corporate ladder. It doesn't matter if you, if you get all the money together in the world. Read Ecclesiastes, build, build cities, build, build kingdoms. It, it's all going to be ash before it's over. No one's going to remember you after a couple generations. I don't care how famous and powerful you are. They'll read about you and kids will be like, oh, history. I don't want to have to read this stuff. That's what you'll be even if you're famous. It's, it's, it's all meaningless, but walking with God, that's eternally significant and has eternal blessing. And so, so this is the difference between a spiritual life and living after the flesh. God's children should be waiting on God's timing for the blessing. Third, this means a posture of anticipation. It can start to feel uncomfortable anticipating. How long, O oh Lord? How long do I have to wait for whatever the thing is? It never happens. It will. God has perfect timing. All that whining and griping about when, O oh Lord, when it happens, we'll be like, oh, we were silly. We could have we had a better attitude about that. So we'll just do it. Wait. It's a posture of anticipation. What are we anticipating? How about the future of national Israel? I don't mean the Israeli state as currently composed. That's a regathering of Israel, the genetic seed of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in unbelief, as the Bible predicts. That community is eventually going to welcome the Antichrist and worship him as God. That's what's going to happen to the unbelievers of the earth, including those in, uh, who, of Israel. I mean, that's what's happening, what's going to happen in the future. It's not an anti-Semitic, anti-Israeli statement. It's a prophetic statement that the Jewish writer John was given by the Lord in his vision and revelation. That's what's going to happen. They're going to worship Antichrist and think he's God. And he's going to kill a lot of them. That's the future. Well, another, what, what else are we anticipating? I'm anticipating a third temple on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. I don't know when. 
I know there's a lot of people, a lot of money behind it, a lot of buzz and excitement about the, the temple project. We've got the red heifer over there that I guess the Aggies or somebody put together. We've got a new red heifer. And so, so they, they, they finally cracked the code on a genetically accurate red heifer. And so you can't have the temple until it gets cleansed with the ashes of the red heifer. We have the red heifer. There's going to be a temple in Jerusalem on the Temple Mount. I don't know how. I don't know when. And it's going to be administered by Jews. There, I don't know. Again, it's, it's got to happen. Daniel 9 says it. The book of Revelation says it. It's going to happen. You've got this regathering of unbelief. You're going to have this embrace of Antichrist. And then you're going to have this horrible persecution. You know what else is going to happen? 144,000 Jewish people from the 12 tribes of Israel are going to go throughout the world preaching Christ and have a massive impact of evangelism. And Antichrist government is going to persecute these people and behead them in millions, apparently. And they're all portrayed in Revelation as under the altar. Lord, when are you going to bring judgment? When are you going to shut this down? There's going to be a remnant of believing Jews in Israel with Antichrist and what's left of his, of his forces arrayed against them at the battle of Megiddo or the, 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 the plateau of Megiddo, Har, mountain Megiddo of Megiddo. Armageddon, there's going to be this arrangement of the nations against Israel and in remnant, Jesus is going to return to deliver them and they're going to look on him whom they've pierced and they're going to resort to, to Yahweh in Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ. And all of Israel is going to be saved. This is the future of national Israel. Some of the features, just a few things. At some point, the, the federation of the, what today would be Turkey and uh, Iran and Russia is going to join together in some massive attack on Israel uh, before Jesus comes back. They're going to, we don't know when, but there's going to be this massive attack that's going to be supernaturally put down. We read about Ezekiel 37, 38. I don't know when that's going to happen, but that's the future. There's a lot the Bible says that's coming in the near future, in the, in the distant future, in the future for us. What, what's the next big deal for you, though? I told you the future of Israel. What's the deal for you? Because if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, even if you're Jewish, you're, you're more than just Israel. You're the church. You're the body of Christ. So some people of Israel are in the body of Christ today. That's what it means to be the, the, the church, Jew and Gentile together and one new person in Christ. What's the next thing for you? What are you preparing for? Are we preparing for the temple? Are we preparing for, preparing for, uh, for the Antichrist to come? Are we trying to vote against Antichrist? What we're looking for is, I know you, you, you're thinking rapture, but you don't have any influence on the rapture. There's nothing you can do to make it happen or not happen. There is something that you can do that comes after the rapture that your direct choices every day affect. The next big thing that your daily choices are taking care of is called the Bema or the judgment seat of Christ. There is a judgment for believers that is different from the great white throne judgment for the unbelievers. And it's the question of what did you do with what I gave you? How have you lived in the power of the Spirit on the mission that I supplied to you? What did you build with when I assigned gold, silver, and precious stones in the construction project? And that's 1 Corinthians 3 and 2 Corinthians 5. What did you build with? And if you built with gold, silver, and precious stones, then it's tested by fire. And everything that makes it through the fire that comes out, you get to keep. There's a reward for that service. But what about the other materials? Well, if you build with things that aren't the good things, if you build with, gold, with wood, hay, and stubble, that goes up in the fire, and you get, you get nothing except singed eyebrows. And you enter, though as through fire, it says. There's the testing of the works, the bonfire, the vanities. 
And so your life's choices are not about Antichrist. They're not about the Temple Mount. They're not about these things that we are making choices that will perhaps affect them. But what you and I need to be focused on is our daily choices are about the judgment seat of Christ. By the way, including how you deal with Israel. We are in a posture of anticipation. Why don't I see these things happening? Where is his return? He said he'd come back. It's been 2,000 years. Relax. Relax. It's coming. A posture of anticipation. Knowing God's character makes the anticipation bearable. This is the big idea to me, is that he's waiting. I can wait with him. He's waiting to bless. He's waiting to pour. He's waiting for his timing, for things to align the way he wants to. All right. He's, on a, he's leading me on these paths of righteousness, right? He's my shepherd. He's got the walking stick. He's got the rod. He's leading. I'm following him. Okay, Lord, these calf muscles are burning. Okay, but we're going. I just want to go wherever he wants me to go. I want to go on that path, and I want it to take me where he wants to take me because he knows exactly what he's doing. And whatever the circumstances, if that's my attitude, if that's my relationship, then this anticipation is bearable. It's about my personal walk with him. So last and fifth and last, it's a matter of faith. Do we believe that Yahweh is a God of justice? Do we believe what the Bible says about him? Do we believe that he's waiting for us to bless us? Do we believe that even though the circumstances might be very dark and painful, I'm on a path with him and we're going somewhere. Or am I going to listen to Satan's lie and say, God has abandoned me and I'm stuck and I'm off in an eddy and my life doesn't matter anymore. Every step we take, we need to take in faith because this is the God that we serve. And that is why theology. The reason for the theology, the knowledge of God, is not so that you'll know about God or have a special neat little model to describe him and have the new way people at the theological consortiums get together and talk about God. Oh, we're talking about God as the, you know, the evolving God or whatever, however they come up with the new way. God, our mother, or however they want to do it. The shack, big mama and big papa and, and uh, the carpenter dude and, the, and the, the Asian lady. That's how they did in the shack, the, the Trinity. We, that's not the reason for theology to dazzle people with a new way to do it. The reason for theology is not to know about God. Listen, it's to know God. And maybe you won't be able to pull up Isaiah 30, 17 from memory and say, ah, he's waiting to pour. Maybe it won't be that Isaiah 30, 18, I am happy if I wait on him. I know this and I believe it. Maybe you won't be able to pull it to memory. Maybe this will make an impact. You say, no, these are, these are some verses that I'm going to have with me. This is who God is. And this is what I'm supposed to be about. I think it's really powerful. But you'll know the answer from having traveled this road. No, God's working. He's, in a, he's got me on a, a program here, and I am walking with him through these paths of righteousness for his namesake. Father, we thank you for your leadership, for your provision, for your plan. Thank you for all that you're doing in us, through us, in the power of your spirit, through your word, and for the challenges that you put in our path. We know that they're for your glory, for our good. And uh, those coincide. What is best for us brings most glory to you because of the nature of your goodness, your righteousness, and your love. Father, we thank you for the portrait of love most explicit at the cross where Jesus, hanging between heaven and earth, is at once satisfying 
the demands of justice on our sin and the dictates of love in saving us for yourself. Father, let us never lose sight of that portrait of love and righteousness. Help us learn to love your righteousness and love you for your righteousness. And show, and show us that the paths of righteousness are the only paths for us. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.